You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Well, let me welcome you again to UBC. My name is Craig, and it's always an honor when I have a chance to stand in this place and to share with this community that I love so much. Uh, if this is your first Sunday back after being away for the summer, uh, we are so glad you're back. As Kirk said, uh, Waco left the heat on for you. If you, like me, have stayed in Waco all summer, try not to give the stink eye to your neighbors who have been off of gallivanting and cooler temperatures. Uh, I can assure you they are paying for their lack of acclimation to the surface of the sun. Uh, I'm glad y'all have been here through the summer as well. And if this is your first Sunday ever at UBC, whether you were a new, a new student or professor in town, or if you, I'm about to recycle an old joke, just happened to drive by and look at that building and say, I, th- I bet that place is a church, um, and thought, uh, I'll just stop in, we are especially happy to have you today. I'm biased, but I believe this is a special place, and I hope you find it to be one as well. <clears throat> We are a community that believes beauty and creativity are some of the greatest gifts from God and are to be treasured and practiced. And I hope you felt that when you walked through the doors and when you sang the songs and and in all of your experiences this morning. We are a church that welcomes your doubts without an expectation that they will be resolved anytime soon, if ever. We are an inclusive community. We do not... Uh, affirm the value and dignity and worth of every person, including those in the LGBTQ plus community. God does those things, and we say yes to God's affirmation. And we believe that whatever your sexual orientation or gender expression happens to be, that it is a gift from God. And when we say you are welcome here, what we mean by that is that you are welcome to fully participate in the life of this church, including in the waters of baptism, the calling of ministry, and the covenant of marriage. We believe Jesus calls us to value justice, kindness, and compassion here. We know that the people who walk through these doors have had vastly different experiences with church. For some of you, church has been your greatest source of hope, home and healing. I did not intend to alliterate that, but it happened for others. And that may be traumatic for some folks to have an alliteration there, Uh, which leads me to, for others, it has been the primary source of your trauma. And it is possible, even here in Waco, Texas, that this is the first time you've walked through the doors of a church building. It can be difficult having people representing all those different experiences of church to be gathered in one place, sharing life with one another. But I believe the way that we try to celebrate, honor, and take seriously each of those experiences is one of the things that makes this a special place. And we are a place who believes that whatever you have to give to this moment is neither too much nor too little but God sees your presence here as a gift. Lastly, we are also a church that has been without a lead pastor for about a year and a half. But thanks to the work and care of an incredible pastor search committee, 
Earlier this summer, they announced and um, gave the recommendation to the leadership team who voted, and many of us got to meet with um, with Andy Pellisier. They called her to be our new pastor. She's from the Northwest. We are so excited to welcome Andy, who has let us know that she will be with us as soon as all the necessary steps to make a cross-country journey with her family um, fall into place. And with that, I would like to share a video clip with you. Hey, BC. Andy here. Oh, it's so good to be together, even if it's from miles away still. I miss you. I think about you all all the time, and we just cannot wait to get down there and integrate into the UBC community. We are so, so excited about stepping into this uh, beautiful chapter that UBC is starting, uh, a chapter that continues and builds on a history of rich and incredibly beautiful welcome, uh, really the heart of the gospel, uh, the ability to just see value in people and to love them simply because they exist. And that is uh, such a gift and such a needed thing in our world. Wanted to share a quick update as well. Uh, last night, Jeremy and I accepted an offer on our house. So we're on our way, you guys. We're on our way. Uh, I hope you're ready and I hope you're excited. And if you're not, that's okay too, because I have enough excitement uh, to fill <laughs> to fill the whole building. So we are looking at mid-September to late September for our time frame when things get closer, we get through inspection and appraisal, we'll be able to nail that down a little bit better. But I am over the moon at the thought of stepping back in that building and seeing your faces. The first time that I had the opportunity to be with you, you didn't know I was there, but I was watching, watching the interactions, watching the, the love being shared. And I thought, oh, this is it. This is it for us. Uh, and then stepping up and uh, starting to preach, looking out and seeing this incredible sea of warm and receptive and kind faces. You have been such a gift in my life already. And I just cannot wait to further those relationships we've started and start new ones with those that we haven't yet. So be well, my friends, and I will see you in person sooner, hopefully, rather than later. Bye. All right. Andy, Andy watches us every Sunday morning so she can hear your, your clapping and your excitement. Um, and uh, that's Ben Rayleigh, Andy, uh, uh, the last clapper. Um, but yes, we are so excited uh, for Andy to be with us. Uh, thank you, um, Andy and family. Um, we are just overjoyed. Uh, I also want to thank again the Pastor Search Committee who just did difficult and incredible work um, in this. And also thank Kirk, who next Sunday will be his last Sunday. Next Sunday, we are going to have a time to honor both Kirk and the Pastor Search Committee here in the service. So um, I hope you are able to be here. Last week, I got to hang out with my almost 12-year-old friend, Luke, who is the son of good friends and who was in town uh, visiting his grandparents for a week before he starts school. We were sitting around my table around ice cream and cake, and he was talking about things he doesn't like and things he doesn't like people asking about him. He's a pastor's kid, so he gets a lot of questions. And I asked him if one of those things was his scar. When Luke was just six months old, his pediatrician found a tumor on his liver, 
and was concerned enough to schedule a surgery uh, for later that week to remove it. For those who love Luke, it was a week of clinging tightly to our faith and God and praying a lot of, God, if you will do this, I will do this types of prayers. The good news is that the tumor was benign and Luke has grown into a healthy boy that brings all of us who know him incredible levels of joy. And if you see the world the way I see the world, the other bit of good news is that because of the incision and a feeding tube that had to be inserted into his tiny body for several days, Luke came out of the experience with an extremely cool-looking scar several inches long across the side of his abdomen. Luke does not see the world the way I see them. He doesn't like his scar. He doesn't like people asking about it. I get that, but I still tried to win him over to my way of thinking by letting him know that a lot of well-known people have scars that other people think are really cool, Uh, which the conversation led to Joaquin Phoenix, who is, of course, recognizable by his cleft lip, which led to a conversation about Joaquin Phoenix's film roles, none of which Luke had seen. Joaquin Phoenix doesn't really make kids' movies, uh, which led to a conversation about the Joker, which led to Luke, who loves Batman and all things DC, uh, around the DC universe, asking about the film, which had me describing the concept of origin stories, which led Luke to asking the question, okay, but who was the good guy in The Joker? I had to think back and remember that there really wasn't a good guy in The Joker. And if there was, it would have probably been The Joker. I waxed eloquent on this. Uh, I waxed eloquently to this 11, almost 12-year-old about how great stories don't necessarily have bad guy, good guys and bad guys, but people who must live with the consequences of theirs and other people's actions. And these great stories are about their journeys uh, to a point in time at the end of the story or the film. And I talked about how in these stories, a character in any given scene can, be, can do very good things in one scene and in the next scene do very bad things. Uh, to which Luke replied, okay, well then who was his nemesis? Uh, I cut a lot of information about the Joker because um, although I like films, uh, I know people really love their superhero movies and don't have time to be corrected on all the themes and stuff at the end. Um, I imagined a lot of folks would come up to me and say, well, actually, well, actually um, <laughs> it can be challenging explaining stories without a clear evil nemesis are good hero to children, but I'm not sure it's any easier for us adults, especially like us who, uh, adults like us who read and value the stories found in the Bible. Even after years of formal religious education and many more years of reading and listening to the nuances of scripture, I still approach biblical texts sometimes by asking, who here is the hero and who is the villain? But the Bible, and especially the books of the Old Testament, isn't really read faithfully when it is read like that. It might fill a lot of pews, uh, but it doesn't honor the complexity of our sacred text. Um, When Andy preached to us several weeks ago, one of the uh, lines that stood out to me as she was looking into a similar text was, I'm very glad that I don't have to pick a hero in this story. A better question than who is good and who is bad here is, what's going on here? 
In our passage for today, the, le- uh, the lectionary, which is a uh, way to read scripture that over the course of three years um, will take you all the way through the Bible, um, drops us right in the middle of a dramatic moment shared between brothers. A little background. Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame grew up as the favorite child of his father and like most favorite children, didn't really know the wisdom of keeping his favorite child status to himself. He also didn't have the wisdom to know that when you have a dream about how your brothers will one day bow before you, you probably shouldn't share that dream with your brothers and ask them, what do you think this means? His brothers, in true brother fashion in the ancient world, and maybe also in the contemporary world, decided to teach him a lesson by trying to kill him. The situation de-escalated to the arguably less severe act of trafficking him into slavery in Egypt, which they thought would probably lead to his death anyway, but which eventually led him to be the servant of Potiphar, the right-hand man of the Egyptian pharaoh. This is an earlier pharaoh from Moses's let-my-people-go pharaoh. Joseph's knack with interpreting dreams helped him rise among the ranks over the years to be Potiphar's most trusted servant. His administrative skills during a time of agricultural abundance in Egypt, uh, agricultural abundance set Egypt up to be prepared for a time of famine, a famine that brought his brothers to Egypt in search of food, unaware of the fact that Joseph was even still alive, or that he had risen to such a high rank, or that he was the one standing in front of them in the scene, holding the keys to their fate in his hands, and in a position to enact revenge on them for his enslavement. Joseph doesn't, however, seek revenge, and instead gives us this beautiful moment of forgiveness and restoration. But not before saying something that is deeply problematic to our contemporary ears, which was found in verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. I don't know about you, but I really wish he had not said that. (laughs) Because it set in motion a lot of Uh, set in motion a long line of evangelical leaders and preachers who would end up excusing or minimizing acts of evil uh, uh, and institutions that traffic in uh, chattel slavery and child abuse and other forms of abuse, who say that God does that and uses them, uh, uses these things to bring bring about good. Much of my study of this uh, led me to the work of Will uh, Gaffney, who's a theologian and a priest and a professor of Hebrew scriptures um, and just an incredible uh, prophetic voice. Uh, Rather than allowing her thoughts on this to uh, support my sermon, I decided just to um, crib a big piece of her study of this passage um, and to quote it to you. She says this, The lesson of forgiveness in this passage is particularly poignant. Combined with Joseph's rags-to-riches story, it is something like a fairy tale. Unfortunately, those lessons are entwined with a deeply problematic theological gloss 
which is that the human trafficking in the story was a tool of God to save the lives of Joseph and his family from the impending famine, justifying the, the actions of his brothers and to selling him into slavery. While that narrative device makes for great theater in the story of Joseph, it paints an unrealistic glaze over the institution of slavery in and beyond the Bible. Joseph's experience of slavery in the narrative was one in a million and does not mitigate against the unjust and dehumanizing institution used by the Egyptians and other ancient peoples, including the Israelites, or later American chattel slavery in North and South America and the Caribbean, or the contemporary trafficking of women, girls, and boys. I have this bolded. The claim of verse 8, which is, it was not you who sent me here, but God, should perhaps be understood in the story as Joseph's perception of his circumstances and not as a broader religious sanction of slavery, human trafficking, or any other social ill over which an individual triumphs. Joseph does what so many people do, what we do, which is to try to make sense out of what he has experienced by drawing on his own limited understanding of God. She goes on to say that Christian readers have been quick historically to identify ourselves with the Israelites. And as a result, many have never thought about the fate of the ordinary Egyptian, Canaanite, Babylonian, Persian, and other peoples who were decimated at the margins of the Israelite scriptures. Yet Joseph himself stands as a bridge between cultures. He lives as an Egyptian with an Egyptian name and an Egyptian wife. Their children are half Egyptian. His brothers, uh, a couple of his brothers also marry and have children with women from the surrounding communities. His grandfather, Rachel's father, was an Aramean. And his great-grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, uh, were from Chaldea, which would later become Babylonia in our time, Iraq. Remembering Joseph, telling his story, means remembering that some family relationships are deeply troubled, even violent. Remembering Joseph means reminding ourselves that even in the most deeply troubled family that has experienced unimaginable rupture, that forgiveness and healing are possible. Remembering Joseph and telling his story through this lesson provides us an opportunity to reflect on our stewardship, generosity, and relationships with others, neighbors, and strangers. And lastly, today's lesson with its focus on Joseph reminds us that our actions have consequences that we may not be able to foresee. End quote from Dr. Reverend Gaffney. The story of Joseph and his brothers, like all stories of family and community found inside of and out of Scripture, is complicated. But when asking what's going on here, it's helpful to zoom out and look at all of Genesis and all of Scripture and all of God's activity in human history, which is the story of God restoring humanity to God and to each other. The story of Jesus isn't primarily a story of God forgiving us of our sins so that we can one day go to heaven if we pray the right prayer, although it may be about that as well. 
but it's the story of God and Jesus absorbing all of our destructive behaviors and breaking the cycles of violence and retribution so that as it is in heaven can be how it is on earth. It is a story of scars that represent hope, healing, restoration, and joy. This song came to mind from my favorite, one of my favorite saints, Rich Mullins, and I'll close with this. This is from his song, Peace, a communion blessing from St. Joseph's Square. Different St. Joseph, but um, still appropriate. And though I love you, still we're strangers, prisoners in these lonely hearts. And though our blindness separates us, still his light shines in the dark and his outstretched arms are still strong enough to reach behind these prison bars to set us free. So may peace rain down from heaven like little pieces of the sky, little keepers of the promise, falling on these souls the drought has dried. In his blood and in his body, in this bread and in this crucero, we are about to eat, and in this, his wine and the bottled water and uh, carbonated, caffeinated sugar drinks, we are about to drink. Peace to you. Peace of Christ to you. Amen. We like to take a few moments of silence at the end of uh, every sermon to give God and the Spirit of God an opportunity to speak new things to our hearts, to clarify things that I have said or to correct something that I may have said wrong. So let's take a few moments to do that now. <laughs> 